Welcome to Behind the Podium, a podcast series produced by GTS Educational Events that lets you hear what speakers are saying before or after the podium mic is turned on. Join me, your host, Jasper Appleton, to find out what makes these speakers tick and discover new insights about topics that matter to you on each episode of Behind the Podium. Welcome back to the Behind the Podium podcast. I'm your host, Jasper Appleton. And with me today is Chief Information Officer of the State of North Dakota, Mr. Sean Riley. Sean, thank you for joining us today. Uh, no problem. I'm glad, glad to be here. Awesome. And uh, first, please tell the listeners a little bit about what you do and what a typical day looks like for the Chief Information Officer of the State of North Dakota. <laughs> uh, I don't know if there is such a thing as a typical day. Uh, basically, we... We as a technology organization are involved in absolutely everything everywhere. And whether that be uh, helping people to get their driver's license, we power the systems behind that, or whether it help uh, a kid who is uh, in need of clinical services for human services, we're powering technology behind that. Um, We help to coordinate the technology that serves uh, hundreds of thousands of citizens every single day. And we try to do everything we can to make their life easier and make their life a little better on a day-to-day. Awesome. And so I just want to kind of dive in first into into your background, how you kind of got into the position that you're in. Um, On your About Us page on the North Dakota Information Technology website, you talk about being born into a broken and abusive home and how you overcame those challenges by having a growth mindset and a we-can-make-the-world-a-better-place attitude. When and what made you decide that you were going to live your life with this driving mentality? Uh, so I was a I was an early teenager, and uh, some some things happened in my home that uh, made me realize, frankly, that I was going to do things differently. So my my father was an alcoholic. My mother had her own addiction problems, and. Uh, frankly, uh, growing up wasn't entirely as much fun as it should have been. Um, and, and I saw some things happen that frankly, uh, probably nobody should ever have to see. And when I saw that, I just had this kind of strange realization in life that this was compliments of the the substances my parents were into. And thus I said, I'm never going to do that. So here I am, uh, in my forties and I drink, uh, cherry Coke a lot, but, uh, <laughs> never touched alcohol and never touched anything else. And, uh, I've never had the problem myself, but I said I was going to break a cycle yeah. and from there, uh, just kind of went from there and tried to try to be different and try to really, uh, find ways to help people instead of let, let those things control me. I just wanted to ask growing up in this unstable household, what was it that made you gravitate towards it and technology as well as leading you to start your own tech company at 16? Yeah, so I uh, I had a couple of uh, interesting <laughs> interactions with computers, I guess. But uh, so my father had bought a uh, an IBM PS2 Model 50. So for anybody old enough to actually remember that, the thing was like the size of a table, and it had this little 10-inch screen on it. It was this huge, nasty machine. Ran on uh, DOS something back in the day, so like DOS 2, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he gets this thing home and he's going to use it for his business. And, uh, he owned, uh, his own, uh, his own company and he was going to use it for that. And he plays around with the thing for a couple hours and he couldn't figure it out and he couldn't really figure out what to do with it. So I was a second grader at this point and he has the book for it and he throws the book to me and he goes, let the kid do it. 
And so it became my job to go figure out how the computer worked. And a couple of years later, uh, here I am coding in basic and I'm building spreadsheets and doing all kinds of things. And I just found it fascinating. And right. there were a couple of people in the community who uh, were great people who uh, were long-term technologists. And one of them, uh, his name was Hyatt King. He was one of the early developers on COBOL. Uh, beautifully, amazingly knowledgeable guy. And he kind of took me on his wing and said, here, uh, you can do this for a living. You can learn. You can make yourself a better person kind of thing. And uh, and it became this great idea. And so as I uh, started gaining these skills and, you know, here I'm an early teenager and had a whole lot more technical skills than average. And uh, I was other gentleman, he asked me to come over to his house and fix his computer as a Windows 3.1 system at that point. <laughs> and I go in there and uh, I was happy as can be because I didn't have to spend time at home. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and I'm playing with his computer for about an hour and a half and I fix it and, and he goes, all right, what do I owe you? And I look at him and I'm going, owe me? <laughs> I had no expectation that he'd pay me. Um, he goes, yeah. He said, you, you've been here about an hour and a half. Uh, okay, well, here's 20 bucks for the first hour and here's 10 bucks for the half. And I looked at this, so 30 bucks. Wow. And he goes, so uh, what are you going to name your company? And I'm like, company? Uh, <laughs> and he goes, yeah, well, he, he worked for uh, American Express. He was uh, a strategic consultant for American Express. And he goes, yeah, I'm going to help you start a company. Wow. And so here I am, 16 years old. And uh, well, I was actually, I was 15. It took us a while to figure out how to do this. For, and he, he taught me the whole thing. Here's how to set up an LLC and an S Corp and do the logo and get it all trademarked and the whole mess. And uh, I looked at him and go, well, I don't know if I really need to do this. And he said, oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> and he helped me do it. Uh, but in, in reality, um, so a lot of people, they look at me and they hear this, you know, I, I bought or created a company. I was 16. I sold it a few years later to, uh, to charter communications and they thought, Oh, Hey, this kid must be super bright. Well, the reality is, is, um, I had a lot of help, a lot of people who, who helped me get there. And, um, more than often than not, I was doing this because I like to eat and making money in the company was great for, <laughs> for, for my for ability eating. to eat. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and I had two brothers and two sisters and they like to eat too. So, uh, so my money kind of went into the five of us and my parents, um, you know, they had other things to do and other things to be mindful about. So they took care of those things and, and I tried to take care of the siblings and just kind of went from there. Yeah, and that just gave you a lot of experience just to get into, you know, the public sector where you eventually went on to IBM and, and Mayo, correct? Yeah, so I I kind of continued uh, building my career, and so I made uh, decent dollars off my company, and it gave me this kind of opportunity to think differently and uh, as things went on. So I, I went into IBM, and um, so then comes... September the 4th of 2001. Everybody remembers September 2001 for you know, one huge reason, obviously. Right. Uh, for me, I have two reasons. Um, September the 4th, so a week before 9-11, I spontaneously end up being the guardian of my 16, 14, and 12-year-old siblings. So here I'm a 22-year-old kid, and all of a sudden I've got three teenagers with literally 15 seconds notice. And um, I, I had bought a duplex in Rochester, Minnesota. I was in the upstairs of duplex laying on my couch and 
uh, and was watching TV and all of a sudden I hear this rustling on the back deck and I go out to my deck and my father's standing there. He's got this black garbage bag full of stuff and it was clothing. He drops it on the deck and standing next to him is my 16, 14, 12 year old siblings. He looks at me and goes, they're your problem now. And he walks down the stairs, he gets in his car and he squeals his tires around the corner. And all of a sudden, so I've got three teenagers and no idea what the hell to do with three teenagers. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, it is, it, it really quickly changed my life. Um, it changed me from being somebody who wanted to go conquer the world and make millions of dollars to somebody who said, Hey, what can I do for people? Yeah. So that led me to, uh, leave the regular private sector, which was at that point, IBM. And I went to Mayo Clinic because that was a place I said, here's somewhere I can help people. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I went in the mail, uh, did all kinds of fun things. And uh, later on, Governor Burgum gives me a call and says, uh, hey, uh, uh, you got to come up and apply. And uh, his staff gave me a call anyway. And I went up and talked to him. And uh, I listened to the governor's conversation about how he really, really truly believes that he can make the lives of people better through the use of technology. Yeah. And as I listen to that, uh, it's like, cool, I'm in. Yeah. I've <laughs> uh, uh, been doing this ever since. So, yeah, no, that's that's incredible. And yeah, a lot of people traditionally will leave the public sector to more lucrative careers in the private sector. But you did the opposite, um, leaving IBM and Mayo Clinic to take your position as CIO for the state of North Dakota. Why did you make that move? And what was that conversation with your wife like? <laughs> Um, well, you, you take a pretty good salary cut doing that. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, I, I was making, uh, I was making a lot more money before. Uh, but for me personally, money's not a motivator. Um, right. I really don't, I, I don't care, um, how much money I make as long as I can feed my kids and keep everything going well. Uh, my wife definitely kind of uh, turned her head left and right a few times <laughs> and, uh, and says, uh, "Wait, wait a minute! You're gonna you're gonna move somewhere that's 515 miles away to North Dakota to take a job that pays less, and you're gonna drive back and forth." Uh, <laughs> yep. <laughs> Uh, but she, she definitely, she, uh, yeah, she definitely asked a lot of questions, but she's very supportive and she makes it absolutely possible for me to do that. And, uh, so yeah, I, I go back and forth between Minnesota and North Dakota on a constant basis. And, uh, usually, uh, Thursday nights, I, I go back down to Minnesota and Sunday afternoon, I go back up to North Dakota and, uh, we just, uh, we make it work. It's, it's a, work, yeah. it's a dynamic world and we can figure it out. Yeah. And you talk about striving to be a servant leader. What does that concept mean to you? And how do you know if you are being such a leader? Yeah, servant leadership to me is helping everyone around me get to where they want to go. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way in which I measure that is the number of people who have worked for me multiple times. <laughs> um, I have several people who have taken jobs with me, uh, worked for me at IBM, and then left that to come work for me at Mayo Clinic. And uh, a couple of them even have now left Mayo to come and work for me uh, here in North Dakota. But it's really, I, I try to help people become what they want to become. Yeah. And we work together to be able to get projects done and initiatives and change the world. But uh, I've helped a lot of people work for another company, leaving me, and I'm chewing on my hand the whole time saying, 
I really wish I could keep this person, mm-hmm. but I'm helping them get to their next level. So we've been uh, hearing a lot about smart cities now for several years, and there are a lot of great examples of how local governments are being smart with technology and community planning and design. But you talk about smart states. How are you learning from and using the examples of smart cities to inform a pathway to a smart state? And how is that path to smart states different? Yeah, so a smart city is a, is a great example, right? And as cities become more and more interconnected, they have an amazing amount of data. They have an amazing amount of systems where they, they really replicate uh, a huge number of the functions that get done at a state level as well. Right. And if you look at uh, the motion and transportation and the Internet of Things and how those technologies are expanding in a smart city, the reality is, is the, the state in itself, a state like North Dakota, can absolutely leverage that same type of information in a, in a broader sense. So imagine a world where we have fiber optic cable in every single road and that acoustic fiber optic cable can tell us real time where traffic is slowing down. It can tell us real time in the moment uh, when we have a car accident so that we can instantly get officers or ambulances dispatched to a scene. It can tell us when it's raining. It can tell us when it's snowing. And when it's snowing, it can tell us how much snow is hitting that road. And it also then automatically communicates with the snowplow. So that snowplow, as it's driving down the road, automatically knows how much salt and sand and materials it should be putting on the road to make it safe for drivers. It cuts down on waste. It makes our environment vastly uh, much, much nicer. It cuts down the overall cost, and it makes it safer on the road. And that's just a simple example of just all those kind of places where the technology that is in a smart city can be really scaled up to be able to be used across a, a smart state environment. Right. Yeah. And that's just what civilization is inevitably heading towards as well. Like, and and to kind of be one of those, the first people to, you know, apply, yeah, there's going to be smart cities, eventually LA, New York, they'll all adopt that. But to make a whole state, especially one like North Dakota, which it is kind of more spread out, but to be able to do that and, and apply these fiber optic cables is something that will be revolutionary. So I think that is yeah. That we're is, we're seventy thousand square miles, uh, you know. So seventy thousand square mile state that mm-hmm. has a huge, uh, you know, rural population to it in comparison to uh, your coastal states, and yet we have one of the highest densities of fiber optics in the country. And we actually, you're you're hard pressed to find somebody who can't get gig to their home today in North Dakota. So wow. we have a we have a huge backbone. We have a great great network across the entire state and that really helps to to launch all of this forward and gives us really a leg up on uh, really almost all of our peers yeah i I, that's so interesting i I didn't know that and um talk about the the k20w initiative uh what is it why is it important who's involved and what's the role of your state government and it agency yeah so k20 is a great initiative it is every student cyber-educated kindergarten through PhD. And here's here's the simple question I would ask everybody listening, right? Name me a job today that does not use computer technology. And the reality is, is there are very, very, very few of those jobs. Um, in fact, we were just uh, looking at the research on this 540 some different 
uh, occupations that make up 90% of the workforce of the entire country. And also 540 occupations, every single one of them is a technically based occupation. They use computers. So when you think of that future and you think of that current world, what should a kindergarten kid, that five, six-year-old girl, what should she be learning to right. take part in the 21st century workforce? Mm -hmm. and so what we sat back and said is you've got to have computer science. With computers today comes a risk, and that risk is cyber-related. So you've got to have computer science. You've got to have cyber science. So we in the state of North Dakota have deployed a comprehensive computer science platform, comprehensive cyber science platform. We've taught over 2,500 teachers now, and we've made those standards and those platforms available in every single school district in the state and every university in the state. So our, our intent is to have every single student, computer science and cyber science educated, kindergarten through PhD. And and that's incredible because when I was going through kind of that that age where I was five or six, we were learning how to type, and I and that was just it, just to learn how to type because they thought you know as long as you you'll eventually need to know how to how to use a computer, how to type, that's important enough. But now to be able to teach these kids how to code, how to you know be uh, ed educational and, and you know uh, intelligent on the internet. And what basically a, a computer should do and what it can do is so important for the future. Because if you shape these minds now in, you know, technology and, and what can be done, it, the, the possibilities are endless, you know. Yeah. And so I walked into a classroom. Uh, it's a small elementary school on the north side of Bismarck. And I walk in this class. These two little girls it's second graders. Uh, they're barely, you know, eight inches across and they maybe come up to your ribs. Right. Mm -hmm. And this little girl, she runs up to me and she's got this big sign. She goes, stop, don't move. And I was just kind of startled. Okay. <laughs> On the ground is this little dashbot, and this robot is about 10 inches tall. It's blue and it has these big wheels under it. And the robot drives up to her takes a right, drives right up to my feet. The head of the robot looks up at me and says, please take your message. And in the back of that, that robot was this little Lego box that they had built. And I reach down and I pull out of it a letter and I open up this letter and it's a welcome to the classroom. I go wow. in that classroom and every one of these kids, second grade kids is doing codeforkids.org. They've got Ozobots. They've got Dashbots. They're programming. They're doing what we, they're, they're kids who are going to be creating things we haven't even thought of yet. And those are second graders working in robotics and working in code today, right now. That is what we have to enable. That's what we have to be able to get the entire nation changed. Not just the state of North Dakota, but everybody has to be thinking about what is tomorrow going to look like those kids are going to design tomorrow and we have to help them get there. Yeah. Now, I'm, this initiative just sounds like something that every state should be doing, in my opinion, and I, I think it's absolutely wonderful. Um, historically, public sector jurisdictions, local, county, state, federal governments, and school districts have been very distinct, but it sounds like, uh, slash seems like, 
in order to create a, a smart state, collaborations across those lines is needed. How do you do that successfully, and how do you bring something together to play in the same sandbox? Yeah, this, it's absolutely, it requires a lot of collaboration, and it requires a lot of change and thought. And I know, you know traditionally, uh, all of these organizations have been very, very independent from each other. But the reality is, is we live in a connected world. And this connected world that we're in today, the the adversaries we deal with in the cybersecurity, for example, they don't care about borders. They don't care that you're in Fargo and it happens to be on the North North Dakota side of the river or that you're in Moorhead and it happens to be on the Minnesota side of the river. You know, they don't care about any of that. They care about what can they get to and how can they steal money from you or steal information or steal systems. And that that risk is what is really changing a lot of these conversations where we used to have counties and cities that would put their hand up and go, nope, you stay on your side, we'll stay on our side. They're starting to realize that the interconnectivity of technology makes all of us at risk. And they're starting to realize that, frankly, none of us can defend ourselves individually. That, frankly, individually, we're all kind of screwed. But if we work together to be able to try to fix problems, we can make a huge, huge inroad. So uh, it's, it amazes me, actually, we're having communities coming to us, not just, ju- not just from the state of North Dakota, but other states who are coming to us and say, hey, can we talk about sharing platforms, sharing data, sharing cybersecurity um, to be able to get things done? So it's, it's really changing the approach that everybody's taking. Yeah, and, and speaking of you know, that, that collaboration, working across sectors, the private sector is a big player at the table in the work you are leading in North Dakota. Public slash private partnerships are not new, but they haven't always had great outcomes. How do you ensure your partnerships with these companies are successful? We, we take a little different approach with the private sector. So we sit down and say, look, I'm not, I'm not looking to uh, ring you out for a system. What I'm looking to is, is how do we create a win-win-win? So the three wins, right? I want you as a private company to make millions of dollars. I want the citizen to be able to look at what we're doing and saying, wow, this is a great thing for us. And I want the state to be able to look at this and say, we have lowered costs, we're providing better services and create that win-win-win environment across the board. When you frame it that way, it is a much, much better conversation. And that's been part of our focus is really just to change the perspective so that everybody walks away with something they can hold their head high on. That way, uh, we get a much, much better result. Right. You want that Michael Scott win-win-win situation for any Office fans out there (laughs) that are are listening. but uh, one of the innovative in- initiatives you talked about in North Dakota is precision agriculture. What is it? Why is it important? And who is involved? And what's the role of state government IT? Yeah, precision agriculture, what you're talking about is, is really the future of agriculture. And you're talking about things like autonomous robots. You're thinking about autonomous tractors. You're thinking about the fully 100% robotic autonomous farm. And those type of aspects out there today uh, are just things that, that kind of blow people's minds. So I'll give you an example of, uh, of a tractor I was just in. So this is a combine. And for anybody who hasn't been in a combine, these things are huge. They're two stories tall. 
They're about 40 foot wide. They're massive vehicles. Oh, wow. And massive vehicles. Um, I go and you actually have to climb a ladder to get to the second story, the thing basically to get into the vehicle. And uh, the person who's driving it, uh, he's he drove it up to the field. And I get up there with him and I'm just kind of watching how things are going. And on his right, there's five different screens up on the corner. And we drive up to the field. He On his right hand, there's a like a joystick, kind of like a, a fighter stick, right? And on the bottom of the little yellow button, he pushes the yellow button. He then goes to the steering wheel. He hits a foot pedal and he pushes the steering wheel away from it. And he turns to me and goes, hey, all right, what do you want to talk about? And the tractor had already taken off by itself. The combine had taken off by itself and it starts plowing or in this case, picking, harvesting the field. And it's harvesting the field automatically as an autonomous vehicle. And those are in the fields today. I mean, people think of farmers, they don't think of being super technologically advanced, but I got to say it's one of the most advanced fields in the world today. Um, and we're seeing tons of these cool things. And that's part of what we're partnering with from a state government standpoint is we're partnering with uh, organizations like in the state of North Dakota, a group called Grand Farm. And Grand Farm is working to be able to create the first fully 100% autonomous farm. And in that process, uh, we're helping to do data management, big data management. We're helping with the conversation around cybersecurity. We're helping with the conversations around connectivity. How do we get all those devices connected into central systems? Uh, but there's a lot of great capabilities there that we can really help the farmer of tomorrow really uh, reinvent themselves and become something uh, vastly bigger. Yeah, and I, I just think that the benefits of, of doing automated farming and, and the things you guys are working on are so you know impressive because you can just automate farming like just that in it in and of itself is so genius because farmers for since forever have just been doing it by hand it's a lot of labor it's a lot of time it's intensive but to automate it and have these machines do it it, it not only allows you to produce more crops it'll, it allows you to save more time more energy and then all of that just goes into building a, a better economy for north dakota and i think that's incredible in and of itself well, and just a, here's a here's a real simple example. So a little a little robot. It's about uh, three foot tall. The top of it is a big flat solar panel, and underneath it, it has kind of all these dangly arms. Right? It's a, it's a very creepy looking robot, but what it does is it's got cameras underneath it, and it looks at the plant. And instead of having to spray for weeds and put chemicals on your field the little robot can figure out which plant you want to keep and which plant you don't. And the robot goes and drives up and down the field and picks the weeds out of the field. And you sit here and go, I mean, that's awesome. It costs way, way, way less to build this little robot than it does to put all the chemicals on a field. It's healthier for everybody. I mean, the farmers don't want to put the chemicals out there either, but they have to, to keep their, their crops growing. Um, this is just one of those examples, uh, just kind of a great thing where you can put out there and, uh, and keep running it. So, but, um, awesome examples out there in the precision ag capabilities. Yeah. And, uh, you talk about world-class in North Dakota. What does world-class the average citizen look like in five years? Yeah. So world-class for your citizen, right? 
Uh, who enjoys standing in line? Nobody. Right? Nope. Uh, <laughs> nobody likes standing in line, right? Uh, who wants to be able to have 24 seven, 365 access to their services? Everybody does, right? Um, who wants to be able to have to go to 170 different websites to be able to get three things done across your government? Nobody does, right? You pick out these handful of things, the everybody's, the nobody's, there's almost no one ever in between on those things. So what does world-class have to look like? Well, it means no data entry. It means nobody stands in line. It means you have comprehensive 24 seven, 365 access to any government service all from your phone. It means that you can go to one location and get to anything you need. So the example we give, so take Jane, Jane Doe, right? And Jane right. Doe is a 35 year old woman. She's got three kids. She's been working her whole life. And on March the 5th, she's got a job, but on March the 10th, by no fault of her own, she finds herself unemployed. She's a single mom, three kids. She's never been on any sort of government program. She has no idea how to use these programs. What does she do? Well, in today's world, she looks around and asks, and she goes to Google. She Googles stuff up. Well, if you don't know the name of the agency, or you don't know the actual program, or you don't know any of these things, the odds of you actually finding it kind of suck, frankly. Mm -hmm. So what if you end up doing? She has to go try drive somewhere. And to do that, she's got to get childcare and, and, and. Well, the new world, what does world-class look like? She brings up the North Dakota Gateway application. The North Dakota Gateway says, how can I help you today? She says, I've lost my job. Automatically comes up all of her information, plus here's the services. We can help you with unemployment. We can help you with retraining. Maybe you'd like to start a business today. All of those things are right there for her. She can get through those. By the way, we've noticed because of the documents we have that you have three children. Did you know that we can give you free and reduced lunches? Can, did you know that, hey, winter is coming. We can help you with heating assistance. All those things automatically happened in the back end. All that stuff as a transparent service where government is, instead of getting in your way, it's actually helping you to succeed. Right. And then ultimately, when she has that new job, we can get her off those programs just as easily. So we're right. helping people get to where they need to go, but we're also being fiscally responsible on the other side. And that is what world-class looks like, an environment where it's a transparent environment for the user. They can get their service. They can get in and out of their service. And it's easy and basically an effortless environment. So that's that's what world-class is going to look like in, in North Dakota. And, and that sounds like, again, like it should be applied everywhere. It sounds like a no-brainer. Um, I, I really do hope that, that that works out. I think it will. Um, Final question here, uh, just spending this last half hour with you talking about uh, all the things that we've talked about, what makes you want to do this on a, on a public level, like hop, hop up on a stage and talk in front of hundreds to thousands of people about things like this? What drives you to be a public speaker? Yeah, for me, uh, it's, it's all about the opportunity to change the world. Um, and, and we kind of talked about my past and where I came from, uh, I, I'm not here to make a bunch of money and stick it in my coffin when I die. Um, I'm here to 
to do everything I can to make the world a better place. And I see that as my purpose, right? I get one chance <laughs> at life and my purpose is to make the world a better place. That's why I do what I do. That's why I burn up uh, 1,500 miles per weekend uh, driving between these two states. Um, that's why I fly all over the country talking about these things because if I can help people understand that there is a better way and if I can help people make that leap of imagination, then I've done something good with my life and I, in process of helping others. And that's that's my personal motivation. Yeah. And Sean, let me tell you, if there were more people out there in the world that were like you, the world would be a lot better place. Um, that's just, the you know, the mentality that you have towards everything you do is not only so infectious just from talking to you I'm inspired to go edit this I'm inspired to put this out I'm inspired to just be a better person and so I think that's really incredible and and just again from talking I can I can hear how infectious it is just in your voice and so um, I I just want to say thank you again for for doing this for for being a a guest on on here on our podcast and um, you now have 30 seconds to a minute to uh, plug whatever you want if you want to talk about you know your plans or, or anything this time is now yours I, w- I would say just uh, for, for all those people out there that uh, think of North Dakota as uh, uh, a movie called Fargo and they think of it as cold, I would completely, completely tell you, you have to come up here. You have to see the state, um, see how we are really changing things, how we're making the world a better place. And uh, uh, come, come and come and work with us and see what we can do to make the entirety of of everybody we deal with a a vastly different environment than what it's been in the past and and what we can do to really make the world a better place. So if you're inspired by this message, um, hit me up on LinkedIn, fire me an email. uh, Let's go, let's go change the world. Chief information officer for the state of North Dakota, Mr. Sean Riley. Thank you so much for being here and taking time out of your day to do this. And if you want to know more about what's going on in Sean's life, I'll leave the links to his socials in the description below. All right. Thank you. Very much appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Behind the Podium, a podcast by GTS Educational Events. Visit our website mngts.org for the full lineup of podcasts and to learn all about the exciting events we have coming up.